Good morning, Mosaic Church. We are so glad you're here to worship with us today. If you're new to Mosaic, we are so glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. As many of you know, Thanksgiving is next Thursday, and as is our tradition, we will be reaching out to those in need in our community with warm meals to offer the love of Christ and the hope that can only be found in the gospel. Many have signed up to help, but the more the merrier. If you'd like to be a part of this great gospel opportunity, stick around after service today for a brief informational meeting in our multi-purpose room about how you can join in. And now, as we get ready to worship through singing, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. We also have a kids' ministry for kids' birth through fifth grade, where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age-appropriate, as well as a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're glad you're here today. Let's worship Jesus together. All right. Well, hey, good morning. Glad to be with you guys today. My name is Tad Anderson. If I've not met you, I am the uh, lead teaching pastor here at Mosaic Church. And so, uh, again, on behalf of Mosaic, we are glad you're here to worship Jesus with us today. And uh, appreciate that sermonette from Josh Davidson, our worship leader, on, um, on giving. And so I'm going to tag on to that and uh, ask uh, that you would consider joining us for our Thanksgiving outreach uh, on Thanksgiving Day this upcoming week. I know my wife mentioned that in the announcements this morning, but just want to remind you again that we are doing that as we do every year. Uh, essentially what we do uh, is because of what Christ has done for us, uh, we take time on Thanksgiving Day as believers who experience Thanksgiving every day, really, uh, and we make Thanksgiving meals and we go out into our community to serve those uh, who otherwise may not have Thanksgiving Meals, And uh, we do that as an opportunity to love our community like Christ and to explicitly share the love of Christ with them in the gospel. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, we invite you to join us. Um, we do it in the first uh, half of the day, so it usually runs from about 8 a.m. to uh, noonish. And uh, so, yeah, so that way you can, you can come and you can serve and you can, if you have other plans uh, that day with your family and friends to celebrate, uh, you're welcome to go do that afterwards. And so we will have an interest meeting uh, directly following this service in the multipurpose room, which is on the other side of the breezeway uh, from here. And so uh, if you're interested, please just show up to that. Uh, and we'll be talking for about 20 minutes um, just about basically the, the, the vision, but also the logistics um, so that everyone is on the same page about what Thanksgiving will look like for us and everyone knows what kind of role they'll be in and things like that. So please join us for that if you're, uh, if you're interested. We'd love for you to do that with us. Um, okay, we are concluding our topical sermon series, What Do Christians Think Today? And before I tell you what we're talking about this morning, I first want to say that we got a lot of requests for teaching on the roles of men and women in marriage and family, particularly how men can be godly, faithful leaders of their families if they don't know where to begin. 
on that. And so even though uh, this is the final week of the series, uh, I'm not going to be teaching on that today. Uh, Not because I don't think it's important, but to the contrary, because I think it's actually uh, so important that I don't want to try to address that topic with one sermon when really what it needs is an entire ministry. Uh, You may have seen or heard this uh, reported in the news, but in the world we live in, statistics show that men, American men in particular, are lonelier than ever. Many don't have friends who they feel like they can trust and be vulnerable with. They feel like they just have to pretend like they have it all together when really they have no idea what they're doing uh, and just trying to fake it whether or not they ever make it. Uh, And so guys, if you fall into this category, not going to ask you to raise your hand. Um, But I do want to say God has better for you than that. You're made in the image of God, and you are designed to be a strong and yet humble leader to your wife and your children who they can rely on and flourish under. And the way to be who you're called to be in Christ is not by being alone. It's by being together in community with other men who uh, you can be honest with without fear of judgment and who you know understand you and love you enough to help you overcome the difficulties of life that you are up against, that we're all up against. In their loneliness, so many men are sadly using things like alcohol, pornography, video games, and a host of other unhelpful addictive behaviors to cope with the hopelessness they feel of a life without direction or purpose. But Jesus offers a better way, a way with a clear sense of identity and worth, a way to overcome the sins of your past and to have a hope-filled vision for your future. And so next year, we will be launching a men's ministry to be the kind of environment that fosters that vision for the men of this church, Mosaic Church. We'll have a, a women's ministry too, because we want to equip women to be the wives, mothers, sisters, and friends that God uh, has called them to be as well. But ladies, trust me when I tell you that the best and most important ministry that you can have is the one that flows out of the love, support, and spiritual intimacy that can be shared with your husband when he is following Christ. Okay, And so uh, we will be unapologetically focused on discipling and building up men because the stats also show that when men are engaged in their faith, their families get engaged with their faith as well. And that is what we are after. And uh, we'll have more information and a clearly articulated vision for those ministries in the very near future. But for now, I just wanted you to know our elders uh, heard the message loud and clear through the poll for this sermon series. Uh, Men and women need gender-specific training on how to be the kind of men and women that Scripture calls them to be. So while we're uh, not addressing it, And what do Christians think? We'll be addressing it in what I hope will be uh, an even greater and more fruitful way starting in 2023. Okay, so uh, anyway, now now shifting gears today, the topic that we'll be addressing this morning is the topic of war for obvious reasons. We did have a submission to the poll asking what we believe as Christians about war, and I wanted to address that head on because we have so many here who are either 
um, active or, or retired military. And so first of all, if you uh, serve or have served in the U.S. military, we are so incredibly thankful for you and the sacrifice that you have made to ensure that we have a way of life here in America that is undergirded by freedom, a kind of freedom that is not experienced anywhere else in the world. So we, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. And uh, my hope and prayer is that this message today will not only be informative, but helpful to you, as well as to the church here who loves and desires to be a spiritual family to you. And so with that, let's go ahead and pray, and we will begin. Father, as always, we are so grateful for the many blessings of life that you have poured out to us, but most of all, we're thankful for Christ, for your Son, from whom every aspect of grace and mercy in our lives flows. And God, this morning, as we open your word, I confess that I do so with a level of fear and trembling that is more than usual. Not because I'm unsure of what I'm going to say, but because I know that some of what I'll say could hit close to home for some of the men and women in this room. Lord, war is awful. It is one of the darkest and heaviest aspects of life in this fallen world that we live in. And there are people in this room who know its effects intimately. Whether they want to or not, they have been to war, and they will carry those experiences with them for the rest of their lives. And uh, while I, I know that the words that I'll say in the next 40 minutes will not be enough, to heal anyone from the scars they carry. My desire is to give them hope in the one who can help them and heal them and to encourage this body of believers to be a people who consider ways that they might be a support to them. I am not confident in myself, but I am confident in you, Lord. And so I pray that my words this morning would be biblically informative, gracious, and helpful, and that most of all, the gospel would be proclaimed, and that Christ alone would be magnified, as always. So I, I pray all of this in his beautiful name. Amen. All right. Well, let me start by making a few clarifications. First of all, this is a sermon, not a lecture on just war tradition. I did uh, watch and read several of those in preparation for this conversation today, but I want you to know much uh, has been said on this topic, and I cannot say it all. Uh, I have limited time, and thus I have a narrow scope for what I'll be attempting to communicate. So my aim uh, this morning is two things. Number one, to say clearly the most basic and important things that we should think about war as believers, and number two, to address the most urgent need in a military community like ours, which is hope for soldiers. And so my card's on the table right now. That's what I'm really moving towards in this message. And because this is such a large and potentially complex discussion, I will navigate through it with a, a series of four questions that I'll pose and then do my best to 
answer them in a biblically concise way. So let's, uh, let's not waste any time. Let's just hit the most obvious question first. The question, I think, that's most obvious is, is war ever justifiable? We're talking from a Christian worldview perspective. Is war ever justifiable? And if so, what justifies it? The reason that this is a question that's not so simple to answer for believers could all really be tied back to the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Biblically, as Christians, we believe that every person who has ever lived, regardless of gender, ethnicity, IQ, or socioeconomic status, is made in the image of God. Out of this core doctrine flows the principle that all human beings have intrinsic worth and dignity and should be treated as such. Every life is precious. And war, regardless of motivation, inevitably brings harm into the lives of the image bearers who are involved in it and who are in proximity to where it is taking place. So with that understanding, how could we ever say that war is justified? Why would Christians not simply ascribe to pacifism and denounce war unequivocally? The answer simply stated is sin. Sin. As you know, if you're even somewhat biblically literate, sin is the complicating factor behind all of the problems in this life. God's design and the beginning of creation was not just good, but very good. For humanity to multiply and have a uh, a just and, and peaceful dominion over the earth where there was nothing but joy and blessing all the time as, as all of humanity did what Josh just talked about, worshipped and obeyed God gladly together. But sin, which is disobedience to and rebellion against God, sin wrecked that perfection that existed in the beginning, and now it has marred every facet of the universe. Now, rather than love and unity being the norm for humanity, hatred and division are the new norm. I don't think I need to spend more time on that argument, do I? If you read the news, or if you don't read the news, but you have, your neighborhood has a Facebook page, you know, right? Lots of evidence of the sinfulness of man on those neighborhood Facebook pages these days. Human pride and selfishness are running rampant in our world as a result of the fall, and human beings are not naturally kind and respectful to one another. Because of sin, people often tend toward meanness and sometimes tend toward murder. And unfortunately, meanness and murder are not only constrained to neighborhoods, they are manifested and magnified at a larger scale among nations. This hard reality of our broken world complicates the idealist mentality of pacifism. You see, because the concept of justice is the concept of all people being treated rightly under the law. 
And when people are grievously sinned against, it becomes a justice issue, doesn't it? The moral wrong that has been done, our, our consciences tell us, needs to be made right so far as it's possible. And while, yes, Jesus instructs his disciples in interpersonal matters to turn the other cheek and to give to those who would take from us when it comes to our material goods, the doctrine of forgiveness does not cancel out the doctrine of justice. Two things can be true at once. I've said this before. Jesus can instruct his disciples to be people who radically forgive the unforgivable while also making provision for ruling powers to enforce justice within the appropriate parameters. The same Jesus who instructs his disciples to love their enemies also says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this creates an ethical tension. This creates an ethical tension. And herein lies the issue with pacifism. Pacifism claims that violence is always wrong in every circumstance and thus should be avoided for the sake of peace. But because of the evils committed by some sinful human beings against other sinful human beings, sometimes pacifism will stand in the way of justice. This is a problem. <laughs> this is a problem. If nonviolence is wrongly elevated to the highest virtue, there will be, as a result, many unvirtuous outcomes. While those who would advocate for an unqualified nonviolence view, they will actually have to undermine the virtue of peace that they hold so dear. I would argue, based on Scripture, that love is actually the highest virtue, and that it's actually unloving to not hold people accountable for their actions. Right? And thus it should follow that when we get to the, to the global level, the, the global scale, there will be instances where one nation must hold another nation accountable for its actions. And thus, in such a world like the one that we live in, where ongoing human sin is the reality, in order to respect the preciousness of human life, sometimes the difficult decision must be made to end human life. The golden rule, as it's been called, is Jesus' command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. When applied at the level of government, this rule may, be, may very well lead to killing or the intentional taking of human life. It's important to note at this point that while this is not a conclusion that is drawn easily or lightly 
Killing and murder are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. All murder involves killing, but not all killing is murder. That's why the sixth commandment in Exodus 20 is most accurately translated, thou shalt not murder and not thou shalt not kill because the two are not equivalent. And in a broken world, unfortunately, sometimes the latter must be done to account for the former. All of this to say, if you're still tracking with me, I I know this is a lot of really heavy, complex reasoning. My answer to is war ever justified is that while war is never intrinsically good, sometimes in a fallen world, it is right and necessary for preserving what is good. Seminary president and renowned theologian Al Mohler says it this way. He says, War is a demonstration of the utter sinfulness of sin. In the name of the Prince of Peace, Christians must seek to establish and maintain our faltering and transient efforts at peacemaking until our Lord comes to establish the only peace that endures. In this fallen world, we must honestly acknowledge that peacemaking will sometimes lead to war. In the final analysis, war is the worst option imaginable until it is the only option left. Now, for those who are concerned that I've not yet anchored into a key passage of Scripture. I feel your pain. I would very much like to do so because my job is made much easier when I can do that. But for addressing the topic of just war, I need to pull from many different places in Scripture so that we can see the whole picture. Okay, So to back up my first point, I'd like to take you to two places. First, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where Solomon, the man that Scripture calls the wisest who ever lived, says this. He says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Generally speaking, Solomon is explaining to us the concept of seasons in life. Some seasons that are joyful and and fun, and some seasons that are very challenging and painful. Such is life, he's saying, in this world that is good, but that is simultaneously cursed by sin. And more specifically, in the final verse that we just read, he includes the necessity for war. He says that there is a time for war and there's a time for peace. To expound on this verse in accord with 
uh, Christian just war tradition, I would affirm that it is the right desire for peace that actually necessitates times for war. In 2 Samuel 22, we see that David clearly ascribed to this same belief because he says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them and thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for battle, you made those who rise against me sink, sink under me. So uh, here's what we see that David is saying. David rightly valued righteous living and the grace of God, and yet he said that it was God who led him into war for the purpose of preserving righteousness. And even in the killing of his enemies, he attributes his abilities to the Lord. And so I say, while war is never intrinsically good, it's sometimes in a fallen world right and necessary for preserving what is good. I say that war is not intrinsically good because war is not good for its own ends. And one day when Jesus returns to make all things new and bring full justice to bear on the world so that everything is once again very good, as it was in the beginning, there will be no more war. But even King Jesus himself has justly declared war on evil, and he will end the war by vanquishing his enemies, sin, death, and the devil, for the sake of eternal peace. So that's my first point this morning, that war is sometimes justified for the purpose of preserving what is good. The second question I'll answer quickly is related closely to the first one, and we've already been touching on it. What, why does preservation of good justify war? Again, I've already been getting very close to saying this. Maybe this is obvious to some, but I just wanted to say it explicitly for full clarity. Justice, peace, and freedom are good and worth being defended with coercive and even deadly force as an extension of neighbor love. In Luke 10, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So uh, let me give you, let me try to give you, a hypothetical for instance. This is not a scenario I've been in, and so sorry if the terms are not exact. Let's say that there is a ring of terrorists who are holed up in a bunker somewhere in the Middle East, and when the special forces team, let's say, finds them, the terrorists start firing guns at those who are attempting to bring them to justice. A return of deadly force is warranted, right? Not because killing is no big deal but because killing in that scenario will not only prevent murder, but will also work to protect the innocent lives of defenseless civilians 
who have been subject to the predations of terrorists, right? In this way, the SF team who kills the murderous terrorist is loving his neighbor as himself. For one, he's loving innocent people by bringing a criminal who hurt them to justice and also his attempt to bring that criminal to justice with coercive force that was not necessarily deadly at first was actually merciful and gave the criminal longer to repent of his wrongdoing. Okay. St. Augustine notably said, social welfare requires benevolent harshness. I would argue that the hypothetical scenario I just described, which may have been a similar instance to a real scenario that some soldiers may have experienced in the war on terror, it falls into the category of benevolent harshness. It's not harshness for harshness' sake. It's harshness for the sake of what is good and right. It is harshness for the benefit of free societies everywhere that should be able to thrive without fear of some horrendous act of terror being committed against them. It is harshness under the umbrella of Proverbs 21.15 that says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. It is a right thing for those who desire to wreak terror to themselves experience terror for the eradication of terror. Does that make sense? It's a right thing for those who desire to wreak terror to themselves experience terror for the eradication of terror. Perhaps the clearest New Testament passage that explains this will be Romans 13. Some of you are like, are you sure? Yes. Uh, Romans 13, uh, 1, 1 through 5 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So we see here very clearly that God himself has instituted governments like ours for the sake of upholding justice, even with the use of course of force when necessary. And the authority with which to go to war with those who are a terror to the innocent and who despise freedom and peace, that authority has been delegated by God to governing officials for the sake of defending and preserving societal good. Dr. 
J. Darrell Charles is the Action Institute Affiliated Scholar in Theology and Ethics. He's a contributing editor in the journal Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. And he says this, In its refusal to resist evil through direct action, pacifism in practice bestows upon evil and tyranny an advantage. And thus justice without force is a myth. Because there will always be evil persons who must be hindered for the very good of human flourishing to be protected. Society, he says, without coercive powers is an impossibility. Hopefully, from what I've laid out before you from Scripture, you you would agree with that. As well as the implication that while war is never good in and of itself, it is sometimes right, just, and even loving because it seeks to defend and protect the freedom and the peace of our neighbors. There's a lot more that could be discussed about the tenets of just war tradition and the, I know, particularly the, the circumstantial complexity of each individual war. And if you'd like more resources to read, I'll gladly send those your way. But at this point, which is about midway through, uh, I'd like to turn to our second set of questions that seek to answer uh, what we should do with our biblical understanding of war. And first, I want to address the church in a general sense. What should the church do with the teaching of just war tradition? For sake, of, for sake of clarity and time, I've boiled it down to two things. Something we should know, and as a result, something we should be. As Jesus' church, we should know that while war may at times be right, it is never easy and often has painful long-term consequences for those who have had to engage in it. And because of that... We should be, as the church, as Jesus' church, we should be a place where soldiers can be fully known, fully loved, and graciously cared for. Okay, Let's take those one at a time. I first said that we should know that while war may at times be right, it is never easy and it's often painful and it has long-term consequences for those who have had to engage in it. Um, In my relatively short time, As a pastor in Crestview, I have had uh, the great privilege of having some dear friends whose job it is to leave their family and put themselves in very dangerous situations on the other side of the world in order to, to be plain, in order to kill people who, if left alone, would be plotting to kill us. And on one hand, while if I were to bring these guys up here next to me, I will not do that, but if I were to bring these guys up here next to me, we would be in awe of their sacrifice. And we would say that each of them are heroes in their own right. But when all the applause dies down and they each go to their own homes, 
they are still human, just like us. And the weight that they have to carry is tremendous. Because when it comes down to it, the things they have had to witness, the situations that they have had to go through, and the things that they have had to do themselves, frankly, they are things that most of us cannot fathom. And there are things that no one should have to. War is bloody, and war is horrific, even when it is justified. And it does things to your heart, it does things to your mind, that sometimes cannot be undone on this side of eternity. War changes you. From things like post-traumatic stress, disorder, from living for weeks and months and years at a heightened level of adrenaline and fear, to traumatic brain injury from frequent exposure to explosions, and these are just the tip of the iceberg. While these guys do what they do, many of them for the love and the freedom of their families, they sometimes come back unable to enjoy the very families they gave so much to protect. Struggling with intrusive memories, nightmares, a constant roller coaster of emotions, and the desire to just isolate and hide from life. They wrestle with things like moral injury over agonizing life and death decisions they had to carry out on the battlefield, as well as survivor's guilt, not under, understanding why they came home and some of their very closest friends did not. And in the excruciating memories they carry with them, some wind up looking to drugs and alcohol or sex or a host of other harmful addictive behaviors in order to just slightly numb the pain, if possible. Nationally, the suicide rate among veterans is twice that of the general population. With 22 per day ending their own lives, the fastest growing segment is male veterans under the age of 30. A 2013 survey conducted by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America found that 30% of all veterans had considered suicide. And in 2012, the U.S. Army lost more uniformed members to suicide than to combat. In the words of one veteran, we killed more of ourselves than our enemies did. And I tell you all of this because as an expression of Jesus' church, in an area with a lot of military, we need to know that while war may at times be right, it is never easy and often has painful long-term consequences for those who've had to engage in it. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Church, how can we bear one another's burdens if we don't even care enough to know what they are, particularly for a body of believers who has been planted 20 minutes from the 7th Special Forces Base and Eglin Air Force Base. We should care enough to know and to understand as much as we're able these burdens that our veteran neighbors have to carry so that if they will allow us, we can be a family who is equipped to walk alongside and help carry them which is the second piece of my third point, that we should be a place where soldiers can be fully known, 
fully loved and graciously cared for. While there are men that I am friends with here who could kill me with their bare hands, underneath the tough, heroic exterior, when the time for war is over, they need brothers and sisters in Christ who will be there when it's time to weep and time to break down, time to mourn, and time to be embraced. While we may never fully experience and understand experientially the weight of their burdens, we are called to be a people that they know they can talk to, be heard by, and prayed for, and loved. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. The last thing that combat-weary veterans look like on the outside is weak. But as I've already said, they're still human, and thus their deepest needs are still human. The need for grace, the need for love, the need for mercy, and the need for care. Inwardly, they are often faint-hearted, and the only way to find that out is to patiently pursue them and show them that you are someone they can open up to and trust. So that if and when the time comes, you can minister to them with the hope that's only found in Christ. This leads me to the final question I'd like to answer this morning. How should soldiers process their wartime experiences through the lens of Scripture? If you are a soldier hearing this right now, or listening to it at some later time, I think this is the most important thing that I'll say to you. The Bible teaches that those who have been involved in and changed by war can receive forgiveness for their sins, cleansing for their consciences, healing for their wounds, and salvation for their souls in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many who have been involved in what would generally be considered even a just war still come back from war having been involved in things that they have a really hard time reconciling morally and ethically. Because of this, something many soldiers wrestle with is knowing if there is any hope for them being able to be forgiven by God for the things they know that they have done. And maybe for some, the reason they wonder that is not only because the things they felt they had to do were morally gray and ambiguous, but because if they're honest, some of the things they did, perhaps they were instructed to do, were morally black and white and the choices they made were wrong. I've heard stories, enough stories, to know that this happens. Sadly, I think it happens a lot more than is talked about. And when that is the reality of someone's life, it is common for them to come to a place of writing themselves off as too far gone. But please hear me. Soldier, there is 
No sin that you have committed, no matter how big, whether in war or after coming home from war, that Jesus is unable to forgive. Because Jesus fought the war behind every other war in order to end all war. He fought the war against your sin and my sin and the sin of the world, and he won. He won that war. Jesus fought and Jesus died in the war to save our souls, and in so doing, the blood that he shed is sufficient to cover over all of your guilt and all of your shame and to allow you to have a purified conscience. All you have to do is come to him. Confess where you've done wrong. Repent and be swallowed up in a sea of grace and mercy greater than any sin that you have committed. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but adultery and murder tend to be pretty common sins that soldiers wrestle with having committed. There's a guy named King David in the Old Testament who committed both of those sins in a one-two step. He slept with one of his fellow soldiers' wives. He got her pregnant, and then he betrayed him so that he'd be killed in battle in order to cover over what he'd done. King David was called a man after God's own heart, not because of the heinous sin that he committed, but because of his genuine repentance and his determination to cling to the mercy of God instead of spending the rest of his life trying to run from God. Don't run from God. Don't run from God. David was a bad dude, but it turned out that under all of his external strength, heroism, victory on the battlefield, he still had a soft heart. And so he actually wound up writing a lot of poetry about his relationship with God. I want to read you something that he wrote. He said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. So don't just take my word for it. Take it from a fellow soldier who knew exactly what you might be experiencing. For those who have been involved in and changed by war, they can receive forgiveness for their sins, cleansing for their consciences, healing for their wounds, and salvation for their souls 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, let me just tell you, I'm not just talking to soldiers right now when I say this. The gospel is not a message for people who think their sins are small and few. The gospel is a message for people who know their sins are big and many. I read a quote about the gospel the other day that said this. It said, the scandal of the cross is that it allows the opportunity for someone like Jeffrey Dahmer to get to heaven and the possibility of someone like Mother Teresa not to get to heaven. I am not presuming to know where either of those people are actually spending their eternities. I'm just saying that is the kind of gospel that the Bible teaches. A gospel where the worst, the worst of sinners can receive abundant pardoning mercy and grace to cover over all of their sins so long as they will repent and turn to Christ. And it's also a gospel that will condemn the most morally upright people in the world, regardless of how many good deeds they have done, if they refuse to admit their desperate need for a Savior. While this saying may offend the sensibilities of some who think that they're good enough to get to heaven on their own works, I'll make no apology for it. Because this is the kind of gospel not only that inwardly war-torn soldiers need, but that I need. Because my sins are not little and few. They're big and they're many. And I need a Savior who can cover them. That Savior is Jesus of whom the author of Hebrews says this. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In closing, I'll just say this. A few times I've heard soldiers make reference to a place called Valhalla. It's a place in Norse mythology where soldiers go who die in battle. And I don't say this in an insensitive way. But I think the reason soldiers make mention to Valhalla is because deep down... They want to know that there is hope for people like them who have seen and done the things they have seen and done. And as I end this discussion on war, I just want to make this abundantly clear.
there is no such thing as Valhalla. Soldiers do not go to heaven simply because they are soldiers. But there's good news. There is a real, eternal resting place better than Valhalla. And you don't have to be a soldier who dies in battle to go there. In fact, there is nothing that you have to do in order to go there. Because what is needed for you to go there has already been done. It's already been done. Jesus did it, even for you, soldier. All you have to do is trust him. Come to him. Weary and heavy laden and lay all your burdens down at his feet. Confess your sin and receive full forgiveness. Receive the peace that only comes from a clean conscience, knowing that all of your sin has already been paid for. This is not just a message for neat, tidy church people. It's a message for all people, even those who have been through and been changed by the incredibly painful and horrific realities of war. I pray that you'll put your hope in that message today. Let's pray. Father, this is one of the most difficult sermons I have ever preached. And Father, I I just ask for your grace and for your mercy because I want to help people who have been to war and who are struggling with the things that they have seen, the things that they have done, and a desire for them to know the grace and mercy and peace that there is in Christ alone, as you've shown that to me. I pray that for men and women who know that their sins are not little and that their sins are not few, but that their sins are big and their sins are many, that your gospel is for them. That's who your gospel's for. And I pray that they would put their hope in it, put their trust in it, find comfort and find peace that only comes from it. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. I pray that Mosaic Church would continue to be a church that proclaims the explicit gospel without apology and where soldiers in this area can come to faith in Christ and believe the gospel. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.